Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're in Psalm 42 this morning, Psalm chapter 42. We're actually starting a new sermon series. It's really more of a mini-series, a four-part series in the book of Psalms. The series is called You, Not Me, The Heart of Worship. Uh, But we're in Psalm 42 today. You know, a pastor recently interrupted a funeral service to ask three men sitting near the front of the church, what would you like for your loved ones to say as they look down into your coffin? Tom said, well, that I was a good husband and father. Bill said, that I lived a good life of kindness to others. Dan replied, look, he's moving. (laughs) All right, now that has absolutely nothing to do with the message today. I just was checking to make sure everyone was actually awake. Because some of you might not have gotten that second cup of coffee. Big question number one for you this morning. Why were we created? Why were we created? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Now, the short answer to the question of why did God create us? Well, it's, it's basically this, for his pleasure. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Uh, Colossians 1, 16, All things were created by him and for him. So really we exist for two different reasons. Uh, We exist to have relationship with God and to bring Him glory. Because we're made in the likeness and image of God, we have the ability to know God, to love God, to serve God, to worship Him, and to fellowship with Him. And so our purpose is pretty simple. You were born to worship God, to bring God glory. We all exist for, for His good pleasure. Now, I, I happen to believe that we're all hardwired with an innate desire for God. Now, some people misidentify that desire, and they try to fill it with other things. But if we exist to worship Him, I think that highly motivates us to be able to define what worship really is. And, you know, we could look at it several different ways. We can look at it from a New Testament perspective. Worship comes from a Greek word, proskuneo. Now, if you see the English word worship in your New Testament, 63% of the time it's going to come from that word proskuneo. It means to to express complete submission to or to fall down in in worship, uh, to give reverence to. Uh, Pros meaning focus upon, skeneo meaning to kiss. And the literal word picture there is actually a dog licking its master's hand. So proskuneo is focusing on God the way a a dog is devoted to its master. So the New Testament concept of worship is complete submission, devotion, like that dog that longs to be in in the presence of his master. Now, I think the heart of worship is really this, that any time a human being genuinely encounters a radiant, living, transcendent, good God, we are moved to the core of our being, and so we express it with our hearts, and with our minds, and with our voices, and with our will. 
We're moved to surrender our lives and make them a sacrifice to him, which comes fully to life. Now, if you want a really short definition of worship, it's this. It's recognizing the goodness of God and responding with an appropriate demonstration of thankfulness, joy, celebration, or awe. Now, church, can you ever remember a time when you were separated from a loved one? Of course, some of you are widows or widowers, or you've lost a family member, so you know what it's like to be separated from a, a loved one. Whether for a short period of time or a long period of time, we, we, a lot of us, we understand that. And how does that separation make us feel? Well, it, it fills us with a sense of longing, I suppose. Um, maybe emptiness, uh, unease. I remember uh, decades ago when I was a little kid, I got separated from my parents at Six Flags over Texas. Now, we were only apart for maybe a few minutes, tops. But I remember in that brief period, I was uh, kind of, as they say, alone in a crowd, surrounded by this mass of strangers. And the separation just created a feeling of, of discontent, uh, really anxiety, almost panic. And so you can imagine the comfort, the relief, the sense of security that I experienced when I was finally reunited with my parents. Well, that actually leads us to the big idea behind these passages we're going to look at this morning. The big idea behind Psalm 42 and 43 is that worship is an expression of our desire to be in God's presence. That's something that we see strongly expressed in our text today. So I asked you a big question, number one, what is our purpose for existence? Here's big question number two. What is the purpose of the Psalms? Now, if you've been taking my Monday night class, you already know the answer to that question because we talked about the Psalms at length a couple of weeks ago. But really, the Psalms exist for this reason. They help us to express ourselves honestly to God and to consider God's character and his ways. The Psalms are of great benefit to the believer who, who looks to the Bible for, for help in, in learning how to honestly express um, whatever they're feeling, the joys and the sorrows, the successes and failures, the hopes and the regrets. Or it's just an aid for us to really recognize God for who he is and to, to worship him more, more fully. The songs and the, the prayers that we find in the Psalms, they really help God's people to worship him by really supplying words of wholehearted praise. And even in the instance of today's text, words of honest, reverent lament. Now, in reading the Psalms, you're going to note that the sons of Korah are acknowledged as the authors of uh, some groups of Psalms, including Psalm 42 that we're in today, uh, Psalms 44 through 49. Uh, but Psalm 43 doesn't have any such designation, which is curious. Why is that? Well, because most scholars believe it's also a work of the sons of Korah, who wrote 11 of the Psalms, 12 if you count Psalm 43. Now, while we've always thought of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 as two separate psalms, psalms because they've been divided that way in our English translations, it's more helpful to think of them as one psalm. And so that's how we're going to look at them today, as one. The authors, the sons of Korah, 
were descendants in a line of worship leaders, and in their day were themselves worship leaders, uh, leaders of choral and instrumental music in the tabernacle and the temple. This particular psalm that we're going to look at today was a psalm that's called a, a maskil. A maskil is a, a contemplative hymn or a, a poem that focuses on the desire to be in God's presence. Which really leads us to the, the first thing I want you to notice from our text this morning, that the true worshiper is thirsting for God. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 42 with me. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. See, when these psalmists wanted to express a deep desire of the soul, they often used metaphor. In this case, a metaphor from nature to convey their point. In verse 1, the sons of Korah use this analogy of a wild deer craving water from a stream. And in so doing, what they're expressing is their unquenchable desire to encounter God. That desire drove the psalmist to worship God any way that they possibly could, but specifically with a yearning to meet with the Lord. I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God, they write. So think about a time when you were thirsty. I mean, really, really thirsty. I mean, besides the time that you accidentally ate that ghost pepper and were clamming for anything, you know, that was liquid to, to try to ease the, the heat. I mean, Maybe after working outside, you know, on a hot day, all working in the yard or whatever, uh, just trying to quench your thirst. Or I think of uh, high schoolers playing football two a days in the heat of August, you know, just dying for something to drink. Or maybe those, those summer family days at Six Flags, you know, walking on the hot asphalt, thinking if you don't find something cold and wet to drink, you're going to melt right out of your clothing. Uh, always made me want one of the, y'all remember the pink thing? Okay, I got one or two chuckles. When I was growing up as a kid, going to Six Flags every summer, they had this, it was like pink lemonade on the stick. It was called the pink thing. Yes, it was a definite thirst quencher. If you've not been to Six Flags recently, go back to Six Flags, get yourself a pink thing. You know what I'm talking about. All right. Perhaps you remember the fable of the crow and the pitcher from your school days. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember if this is one of Aesop's fables or one of the others, but a crow is perishing with thirst. He sees a pitcher, and hoping to find water, he flies to that pitcher with great delight. And when he reached it, he discovered to his grief that the pitcher contained so little water that he couldn't possibly get at it. He tried everything he could think of to reach the water, but his efforts were all in vain. But then... The crow began to collect as many stones as he could possibly carry and drop them one by one into the pitcher with his beak until it actually brought the water level up to a point that he was able to reach the water and thus save his life. Of course, the moral of the fable is that necessity is the mother of invention. But think about a time 
when you had a great longing, a, a thirst, a, a hunger for God that was so great that your, your, your spiritual life actually depended on it. So, at what times do you often find yourself most longing for God? Well, if you're like the sons of Korah, usually it's when times are tough, when we're in crisis or, or turmoil. In fact, that's one thing we note about the way we worship from this text, is that we worship God in heartache. We worship in, in heartache. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. Verse 5. Why, my soul, are you dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? So what was the turmoil that they were writing about? What was the source of the psalmist's inner strife? Well, specifically, it's a longing to worship God, to worship God with God's people, and to worship God with God's people in the temple, or in the tabernacle, rather, in Jerusalem. But the sons of Korah had actually been prevented from worshiping in the tabernacle because they'd been in exile. That was the cause of their emotional state. See, the sons of Korah, these leaders in, in tabernacle worship, were actually accompanying King David as he was driven from Jerusalem by his murderous and rebellious son Absalom, the guy that, who had vowed to kill his own father, to take his throne for himself. In fact, this very crisis is what prompted David to write Psalm 3, and, and of course, sons of Korah to write Psalm 42. Look at verse 5 again, though. Some of your translations will say something to the effect of, why are you cast down, O my soul? Or why are you downcast? It's an interesting choice of words. That word downcast or cast down, it, it, it comes from a, a saying that has to do with, with sheep and shepherding. The word cast is used to describe the way a sheep would slip and fall and actually end up on their backs and aren't able to get up without assistance. They're utterly defenseless until the shepherd arrives to, to help them get back on their feet. But if he's distracted or if he's delayed, well, it could be deadly for the sheep because they're laying on their backs. What happens is there are gases that get trapped in their four stomachs causing severe bloating, which actually cuts off the sheep's circulation. And without the shepherd's rescue, well, the, the sheep is, is, I mean, he's doomed. I mean, death is inevitable. And so by using this metaphor or this choice of words to cast down, the psalmists are basically saying, I am helpless without your presence, God. See, I think likewise, we're often driven to God's presence when we're heartbroken. But you know what? Also in, 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 uh, in verse 4, we see we not only worship God in heartache, we also worship Him heartily. We worship Him heartily with all of our hearts. We often find ourselves longing for God during times of turmoil, but at what times should we be longing for God in worship? Well, Psalm 34, 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. See, that's when we're supposed to express our desire to be with Him. But how do we express our longing to be with God. Well, look at verse 4. I pour out my heart, the psalmists write. Now, it's interesting that that Hebrew word there for heart is nephesh, 
Uh, the Hebrew understanding of that particular term doesn't mean strictly heart. It really encompasses the whole person, body and soul. Uh, think of it as the, the operational center of your being. And in the Hebrew, nephesh is often coupled with an object of yearning. So in this case, it's a yearning to be with the Lord. So how do we express our longing to be with God? With our whole being. But then ask yourself, Christian, what are those things in my life that keep me from truly longing for God? What are those distractions, those, those habits, those misplaced priorities that really keep me from seeking God fully? And so we've seen so far in Psalm 42 that the true worshiper is thirsting for God. Really as an extension of that thought, we also see a second thing, that the true worshiper is despairing for God. Look at verse 6. I am deeply depressed, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Now I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, a couple of additional things we note about the way we should be worshiping based on these few verses we just read. First of all, that we worship God in honesty. We honestly express ourselves to Him. Note there in, in verses 7 and 9, the, the psalmist actually used the, two, the terms uh, your and you to describe their state. They are directly expressing their distress to God. I mean, look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. So these exiles are longing for their Savior in tears while their enemies are taunting them. They're cut off from Jerusalem. And so the sons of Korah could only remember what it was like to take part in worship with, with shouts of joy in these festive pro processionals to the tabernacle. Now the language here in verse 7 is purposely metaphorical. It's, it's poetic. I mean, most of what you read in the Psalms is going to be poetic. It's going to use imagery, uh, metaphor. And so they're portraying distress figuratively, as if waves and breakers are sweeping over them. Trouble was surging with one overwhelming swell coming right after another. The deep trials just kept coming wave-like, deep after deep, they said. In fact, that Hebrew word that's translated as deep, it actually refers to the deepest depths of the ocean. And so the sons of Korah, exiled with David, felt as if these recurring waves of trouble had just 
plunged their souls into a bottomless ocean of sorrow and despair. But remember, what we established was, you know, as the, the purpose of the Psalms, that the Psalms help us to honestly express ourselves to God and to consider God's character and his ways. And so, as you read the book of Psalms, you're going to find just about every emotional state known to humankind. And it teaches us how to express ourselves honestly to him, rightly to him, even in, in the, the ugly emotions. I mean, even in our fear and our frustration, yes, even in anger, it teaches us how to vent our anger to God. And sometimes we don't even know why we feel discouraged or depressed or sad, but that's all the more reason to return our focus to God, to put our hope in Him, to draw on His strength, and to anticipate the grace that He's going to show us. So, we worship God in honesty, but not only do we worship God in honesty, we worship God in hope. I mean, the psalmist, yes, they could express their hurt, their regret, their longing to God. But according to verses 5, 8, 11, their hope was still in God. Look at verse 8. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. How could the sons of Korah have hope in that situation? Why did they choose to continue trusting God? Look at verse 6. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan. I remember you. Now think about their history. God had done some great and mighty things for his people at the Jordan. And guess what, folks? He has done great and mighty things on your behalf, too. And believer, you'd do very well to remember his faithfulness next time you're tempted to doubt him. I mean, that's why in your prayer journal, if you keep a prayer journal, you should have two columns. You should have a request column and a praise column so that as he answers those prayers, you can reflect back on the past and everything that you've seen God do in your life. And reflecting back on what he's done in the past is what gives us fuel for the future. Now, the late uh, Corey Tin Boom famously asked the question, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Because our unfortunate tendency is to treat prayer like a spiritual spare tire. You know, when things seem to be going really well for us, it's really easy for us to just kind of ignore God. I mean, if, if only we just remember His goodness and faithfulness all the time, not just in times of turmoil, well, in times of extreme stress, difficulty, you know, believers can still look back and remember what God has done for them. And it's good to meditate on that kind of stuff. In spite of whatever loss we've endured, if it's the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, the breakup of a marriage, you know, some other difficult transition that, that life has thrown at us, we can still take comfort in the fact that God loves us, and He always will. Psalm 136 says it over and over and over. His love endures forever. 
Well, when we, like the sons of Korah, feel forgotten by God, where can we turn for reassurance? Well, we remember his past faithfulness as a down payment of continued goodness in the future. But you know what? We also have a whole book full of promises to remember. And there goes my sermon notes. Do you know why those, just, I'm going to chase a rabbit here. You know why those are in my Bible? So I've been preaching with one of these for like 15 years or more. I use an iPad, a tablet device, to put all my sermon notes on. I don't trust technology, okay? I keep thinking one of these days this thing is going to peter out on me and I'm just, I'm going to be hosed, you know? So I always put a backup set of notes in the back of my Bible in the unlikely event that this thing goes south on me. So there you go. So, um, of course, I just completely lost my place, but that's okay. So, we've got this whole book of promises to remember. When we're in times of despair, we can remember that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises. And when we, like the sons of Korah, are in despair, it is okay to pour out that despair to him in worship. Yes, in worship. You may be grieving, but you can grieve upon an altar is that okay? Yes. I mean, if David could do it, if the sons of Korah could do it, yes, we can do it too. And yet, why do so many people who are burdened, who are hurting, who are dejected, come to weekly worship and, and act as if nothing is wrong? Why not in our brokenness just lay that burden at his feet? laid at the feet of the one who is our one and only hope. So the true worshiper we've seen is the one who's thirsting for God. The true worshiper is the one who is despairing for God. But then finally, the true worshiper is number three, confident in God. This is where we move to Psalm 43. Look at verse one in Psalm 43, if you would. The sons of Korah write, Vindicate me, God, and champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from the deceitful and unjust person, for you are the God of my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. Then I will come to the altar of God, to God, my greatest joy. I will praise you with the lyre, God, my God. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Two other things to note about worship from these five verses. First of all, we worship God in refuge. Look at verse 2. In spite of all the burdens, in spite of all the turmoil, how do the psalmists view God? You are the God of my refuge, they write. They admit that they're still in sorrow because of the enemy's schemes, even bold enough to tell God that they feel rejected by him. And yet they still identify God as their source of refuge. 
It was a TV commercial some years ago. It was a young girl standing in a picturesque meadow. In another part of the field is a gigantic African rhinoceros, which begins charging towards the girl. And her serene and, and happy face just seems completely unmoved. And as the rhinoceros got closer, the words appear on the screen, trust is not being afraid. And a split second before the, the rhino would actually trample the helpless child, it stops, and the girl, her smile never wavering, reached up and pet the animal on its massive horn. And then the final words appear, even when you are vulnerable. Trust is not being afraid even when you are vulnerable. Now, the commercial was designed to really promote the abilities of St. Paul Insurance Company to protect its clients from the uncertainties of life, but how much more so does it describe the believer who with the psalmist can say, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's Psalm 91 too. We long for God's presence because He's a source of refuge. And yet how many other people in this life are turning to other people, to other places, to other things for refuge instead of God? And yes, I mean, we're, we're all tempted to take refuge in other things besides God, to, to fill that God-shaped hole with something else. I mean, it could be relationships, possessions, spouse, children, your job, your career, a worthy cause. It could be a hobby. Uh, it could be self-glory. It could be accolades. It could be substance abuse, sexual immorality. And while a number of those things that I just listed are actually good things, none of those things that I just listed are a lasting substitute for the refuge that we find in God. I mean, these things, as good as some of them are, they fail to provide permanent assurance because they are by nature impermanent. They're not lasting. But God is. He's eternal, as is his love for us. His love endures forever. Now, in the sons of Korah's day, they had to go to the temple to find the manifestation of God's presence. Of course, you've studied that in Sunday school all your life, the Holy of Holies, the place where God, uh, his presence was physically manifested. But they longed to be in his presence, to be among his people in the tabernacle. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 43 say, let, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. Then I will come to the altar of God, to God my greatest joy. But see, you and I, we actually have an advantage over them. And yes, we are still able to gather together with God's people. And hopefully it's more frequent than, you know, just a token once per month appearance at 1045 at 6th and Beach Street. But under this new covenant that we have with Christ, God chooses to manifest his presence much, much differently. We find it in the form of his Holy Spirit who resides within believers. And so because of that, we're able to worship him any place, any time. And so we worship God in refuge. Check this out. We also worship God in rejoicing. In spite of the turmoil, 
In spite of the alienation, in spite of the separation from the tabernacle, the sons of Korah would write in verses 4 and 5, I praise you with the lyre. Now the lyre is a stringed instrument, kind of like a guitar. I praise you with the lyre, God, my God. And then they say, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. In fact, you see that three times at the end of each stanza in Psalms 42 and 43. Three times the sons of Korah write, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, as you read this, you realize the psalmists are very honest about their feelings of depression and discouragement, but they were determined to continue to hope in God. It's noteworthy that the final refrain really, it, it ends the psalm, but it does not indicate an end to the psalmist's turmoil. Not only is that refrain repeated, but I think the whole psalm is really fit for repeated use for us. When we're enduring ongoing struggle, an encouragement to us to continue to put our hope in God. For I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Ask yourself, believer, what, what kind of pep talk do I need to give myself this week regarding longing for and trusting in God? Ask yourself, what other steps can I take that will help me trust God and hope in him despite my circumstances? Despite the circumstances, the psalmists longed to worship God in his presence. Now, that leads me to a couple of observations about today's text. I, I like to call them life points. You can call them whatever you want. But the first one is this, is that genuine worship is always preceded by a genuine desire to encounter God. I mean, if you came here without a genuine desire to encounter God today, you, you came for the wrong reason. I'm glad you're here, but that's the main reason we should be here. Genuine worship is always preceded by a genuine desire to encounter God. Now, here's a second observation. Only when we have confidence in the Lord and run to Him can we overcome the threats and the challenges and the difficulties that we face. Folks, we are privileged because we have been given access to fellowship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. God desires to, to, for us to rest in His presence and yet at the same time actively worship Him. Again, it's why we exist for fellowship with Him and worship of Him. And an essential element of worship, as we've seen in this passage, is a deep longing for and, and devotion to God, regardless of our circumstances. Ask yourselves, is there a genuine longing in your heart for Him? Is there an eagerness to acknowledge His, his worthship? Or is it just a craving for 
ecclesiastical entertainment. Is it all about him? Is it all about you? You have access to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So my counsel to you is pretty simple. Praise him when you feel like it. Praise him when you don't feel like it. Praise him until you feel like it. Because he is worthy of our blessing and glory and honor and praise. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.